Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Thank you again for stopping by today. Now, I keep saying it, and y'all heard me say it, that when you look at history, you get lulled into a sense that you've just about seen it all while becoming acutely aware that there are those among us who have never experienced anybody telling them no, nor do they know where to draw the line on where enough is. Well, wouldn't you know it, I stumbled across yet another one of these types that was just too dadgum unbelievable to let go. One who goes through life wreaking havoc on just about everybody they come in contact with, even after being caught doing it. They still go straight back to it again and again. Take shoes off and set a spell. Let me tell you yet another true story that's going to knock your hat in the creek. In the Appalachian Mountains of Georgia, Patricia Ratcliffe was just plain bound and determined to become a teenage mother. After all, her family tree was just full of women who had started motherhood at an early age, and in fact that they couldn't financially support these children just really didn't matter much to them. Patricia was born in August of 1937 to her 15-year-old mother. She was a very beautiful little girl with big green eyes and blondish hair that her mother would style into curls like Shirley Temple, except she was always told that her curls looked much better because they were a lot bouncier than Shirley's. She was quick-witted and smart as she grew into a beautiful young teenager. It's said that she got her looks from a movie star-looking parents who were named Marguerite, and her father's name was Colonel Clifford Radcliffe. During childhood, Pat, as she was called, learned how to manipulate people using her beauty and charm. Marguerite claimed that Pat was just so pretty when she was a little girl that I couldn't bring myself to spank her. I couldn't scold her either. She was just too pretty. Her aunt and father also failed in the discipline department when it came to Pat. Of course, it soon came to be that if Pat didn't get her way, she'd throw a dadgum dying duck fit. 
If that didn't work, she moved on to plan B and just manipulated her way into getting whatever it was she wanted. Pat's mother defended her daughter whenever she got into trouble at school and even when she was caught shoplifting. Marguerite apparently didn't realize she was raising a psychopath. She had a younger brother, Kent, whom she loved. He loved to bully and tease him that way, or that is, without mercy. Pat also became a drama queen, exaggerating her needs and fears to get her needs and wants met it. And for Pat, there just wasn't any difference in the two, wants or needs. So even Pat herself wasn't surprised when she found herself pregnant and unwed at 15 years old. She married her teenage boyfriend and moved out of her childhood home, only to come trundling back a few years later with three children in tow. This after her oldest daughter, Debbie, became pregnant at the age of 15 and got married. And Pat, uh, while attending the reception, stood to make the toast for her daughter only to announce that she would be divorcing her husband, Gil, who was promptly served a divorce papers along with the restraining order when then dragged from the premises during the reception of her own daughter's wedding at 15 years old. While many young mothers would have felt defeated after a failed marriage, Pat didn't. She had big dreams, huge dreams, in fact. All she needed to do was find a man who could finance it all and convince him to marry her. Of course, this meant she'd have to leave her children behind with her mother to raise, but in a family used to teenage pregnancies, this wasn't considered anything but normal. It was a family tradition, after all, I guess. Over the course of a few years, Pat dated more men than you could shake a stick at, but none of them quite made the cut. That was until she met Tom Allenson. Tom was a young, handsome, and he had come from a wealthy Georgia family. His father, Walter Allenson, was a prominent Georgia attorney. Walter had lived through some tough times in his life, what with being drafted into World War II and then Korea, then going to law school, he really didn't even get his life started until after he was about 30 years old. Turns out that poor Tom was just about everything that Pat had ever wanted in a man. She didn't care that Tom was six years older than she was, nor that he was marry a married man with a child. Her only focus was the money, and she was determined to get it by hook or crook. Pat's high-maintenance attitude didn't win her any good graces from the other women either. She was a highly skilled succubus when it come to a men, and Tom, well, he was no exception. It wasn't long before Tom's marriage hit the skids on the very day that his divorce was final. He married Pat, and just like that, she was living in a dream, while Tom had jumped from the frying pan right into the fire. Pat always compared herself to Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind. We all know that Scarlett was a woman who knew what she wanted and wouldn't stop till she got it, no matter what. That's how folks describe Pat. The difference between Scarlett and Pat was that Scarlett wasn't real, but unfortunately for Tom, Pat was. So it wasn't a surprise to, at all to anybody when, who knew Pat that when she would go to go on with the wind theme for her wedding. She and Tom wedding. Scarlet and red style clothes and the bridesmaids all dressed up like southern bells, complete with parasols. She even stuck a fake Rhett Butler mustache on Tom to round out the costumes. 
When the ceremony was over, the couple were whisked away in a horse-drawn carriage. What might have been obvious to other folks wasn't so for Pat. Unbeknownst to Pat, Tom wasn't wealthy at all, at least nowhere near what she thought. It was his parents who controlled the money flow, and that wasn't all. Walter and Carolyn Allenson refused to accept their son's divorce, much less his remarriage to Scarlett O'Hara, wannabe with a blown sense of self-worth. Tom's parents felt that he had done, or what he had done was a disgrace to the entire family. Tom didn't care. He was crazy about Pat and determined to give her everything she wanted. So despite the payment being a a strain on the household budget, the couple purchased a 52-acre farm in Zebulon, Georgia, with a gorgeous old home Pat named, well, I bet you can guess, yep, Tara, and set about their life raising Morgan horses. The heavily mortgaged estate was quite the attraction, even earning a visit from then-Governor Jimmy Carter. To those with only outside looking in, it would seem that the Allensons' wealth extended right down the line of time, but the young couple's monthly debt-to-income ratio looked like a Rubik's Cube managed by Bernie Madoff. Walter and Carolyn were so disgusted with their son that, and his decisions that they removed him from their lives and their wills, too. Instead of Tom inheriting his parents' estate, Tom's son and ex-wife would get it all. Of course, Pat was fit to be tied when she found that out. Nobody, especially not Tom's parents, were going to tell her no. By golly, that was her money and she was going to find a way to get at it. All while poor Tom worked three jobs to try to come close to paying for everything that already they already had. One day, Tom came home to find Pat sitting on the porch all bent out of shape and crying. When Tom asked what happens, between sobs, of course, Pat explained that Tom had, or to Tom, that she'd visited his father's office in hopes of trying to, you know, patch things up and reconcile their differences. She said that she'd pleaded with Walter to resolve the problems with his son. That was when dear old Walter decided to expose himself and make lewd remarks to her. Now, being that Walter, at that time, was up for appointment as judge, one would have to think that this man would have to be completely nuts to do anything like that. Didn't matter, though. Tom hit the ceiling and was determined to confront his father. Pat, being a peacemaker that she saw herself to be, insisted he not do that. She told Tom that a restraining order would work just as well. A couple of weeks after the order was granted... Pat told Tom that she'd heard rumors that Walter intended to kill Tom. Now, I wonder where she got that from. While that was going on, poor Walter was telling his friends that he believed his son was trying to kill him. He said that a pistol and a rifle had recently been stolen from his house and that he believed that it was his son who had done it. Police searched all over Tara, but never found any stolen weapons. In fact, Tom was the one who invited him over to search the place. I guess on one of the more rare occasions when he wasn't at work or sleeping off the exhaustion of all three jobs that took place. The less communication there was between Tom and his parents, the worse everything got between them, and they were forced to speak to each other. It was perfect setting for a narcissistic sociopath like Pat to make her next move. 
Now, if you're like me, you're probably thinking that you know where this is going, but Pat's just getting started. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, this was along about the time that the threatening phone calls started pouring in like a unending air pipe of misery on both the Allensons' homes. Of course, each blamed the other. Things escalated when Walter and Carolyn found themselves driving along Lake Lanier when bullets started raining down on them. A terrified couple called police, who then searched the area for the shooter, who was now gone, of course. They were slightly injured by flying glass as the windows of the car were shot out. The Allensons were certain they knew who did it. They thought it was Tom. On the evening of July 3rd, 1974, an anonymous, anonymous caller called Walter at work, claiming to have seen Tom climbing in his basement window. Walter rushed home, finding that the power was shut off and the phone lines were cut. He went straight to the basement where he called for Tom to come out and face him like a man. When he received no response, he began firing a gun wildly around the basement while yelling to Carolyn, Carolyn, his wife, to call the police and bring the rifle down. When the police arrived, they found the shotgun-blasted bodies of Walter and Carolyn, and the gunman was gone. While all the other folks about town were celebrating Independence Day with picnics and fireworks, Walter and Carolyn had been gunned down in the basement of their own home. The feud between the Allensons was no secret to anybody, nor were the reasons why the feud started to start with, so it wasn't long before Tom was in the detective's office because he was the prime suspect. Despite Tom's insistence that he didn't do it, he was arrested and charged with two counts of homicide. Pat immediately ran out and retained the services of a local attorney to represent Tom. Tom's attorney was often at odds with Pat. She was bossy, critical, and insisted on running her husband's defense. Here we are with the never-enough thing again. Pat insisted that Tom and his attorney use her version of events while Tom insisted he just tell the truth. That was, he didn't murder his parents and didn't know who did. As Tom sat out there staring at the four walls of Rayford, Pat visited as often as she was allowed to. During one of those visits, she presented Tom with a Bible, one of only a few books inmates were allowed to have from the outside. What jail personnel didn't know, however, is this sacred book was a tool for Pat to instigate her next plot, a suicide pact with Tom. After that... Every chance she got, Pat nagged at the poor man she supposedly loved to join her in suicide so they wouldn't be separated any longer. Tom actually thought it over, but just couldn't bring himself to do it. Pat, of course, well, she never had any intention to follow through with it. Of course, everybody knows that. Nobody was too shocked when Tom was found guilty of his parents' murder and was sentenced to two concurrent life sentences. Of course, Pat cried her crocodile tears in a fantastic award-winning display of emotion when Tom was dragged out of the courtroom to start serving his sentence. In reality, she now thought that she had all the things that she ever wanted. Kentwood Farms, the name given to the property where the Terra set, was still heavily mortgaged. 
The debt was owed mostly to Tom's paternal grandparents, who were lovingly referred to as Papa and Nona. It was something that Pat didn't realize. But don't worry. With Walter and Carolyn gone and Papa and Nona, grandson in, their grandson in prison, the couple was the prime target for the psychopath. She turned on the charm, well, you know, the Scarlet-style charm, and moved the elderly couple into her home and insisted that she be their sole care provider. In declining health and with no other family nearby to do anything for them or help them out, the poor couple was thankful for Pat's generosity. Soon, Pat had convinced the Allensons that she and Tom, despite his status at the prison as a prison inmate at the time, should be sole heirs of their estate. Papa and Nana agreed and updated the wills to reflect the big change, completely disinheriting their only remaining child, Tom's aunt Jean Biggs. Then, as elderly people do, Nana's health started going downhill fast. She'd suffered some uh, from a few ailments for a while, but she'd never been bedridden as she was during her stay at Terra. Fancy that. Papa uh, was heartbroken as a result of that. Then his health started sliding downhill too, just like Nona's. In a very short time, he lost his son and daughter-in-law to murder, and his grandson was in prison for it. And his daughter was mad and not speaking to him either, and that uh, ream, other than Dream Pat a new one. It seemed like Pat was the only person who stuck around caring about something more than just his money. Looks like everything's on schedule for Pat to be lighting cigars a $20 bill pretty soon, don't it? Oh, that's when Jean finally came to the rescue. After telling the Pat that, or police that she thought that Pat was poisoning the two of them, they took both of them to the hospital for a little testing. The test showed that Nana and Papa both had enough arsenic in their system to drop a horse. And, surprise testimony from Pat's daughter... Susan claimed that she saw that her mother put arsenic in both geezers' food and drink. Pat was finally dragged downtown to face the consequences of her actions. Pat was tried, convicted of attempted murder, and then thrown in the big house for a few years. That's when Tom, who was still sitting in the Stony Lonesome, divorced her. He was supposed to pull 20 years all told, but she didn't, and she was paroled in short order. While she was in prison, she was a model prisoner, which qualified her for, of all things, training in the care of elderly. Yes, you can't make this stuff up, folks. After she got out, she went to live with her daughter, Debbie, who was wedding, or whose wedding she had ruined with that divorce restraining order announcement during the reception. Now in search of a job, Pat convinced a prominent Atlanta, Georgia couple, Mr. and Mrs. Jimmy Crist, Sr., to hire her and her daughter, Debbie as a at-home caregivers. They were hired as RNs, though neither of them had the least bit of training as RNs. That never stopped Pat before, though. She simply told him that both she and her daughter were experienced RNs, and that flew. Mr. Chris didn't live long after Pat began working for him. The Chris family were pretty ill about all of it, but were because they were convinced that Pat neglected Jimmy and poisoned his wife. Betty, too. But the only thing that the police had on them was once they were called over for it were thefts, which could be proven. The thieving duo had stolen money and valuables from a couple. 
they were cleaning them out. They also found out that Pat lied about being a registered nurse. This time, Pat stepped it up a notch by taking full responsibility for the thefts. Pat pleaded guilty to multiple charges in June of 1991 so that her daughter Debbie could walk on the whole thing. Maybe she figured that she owed Debbie for the ruining her wedding or something. I don't know. Pat was sentenced to serve another eight years in prison. Let's not forget about Tom. Prison? Well, that sometimes gives a man a whole lot of time to think about what he's done, if he's so inclined to do so. And during his time in prison, Tom had become to realize a few things. First off, Pat wasn't anywhere near who she pretended to be. She had used him to orchestrate the murder of his parents and would do anything just to get her hands on some cash. Money was the only thing that mattered. And second, Pat was the only person Pat had any true love for. After serving 15 years in prison, Tom was released. Soon afterward, Tom found himself as someone police wanted to interview. This time, they weren't interested in accusing him of anything. They wanted to know more about the evil, manipulative woman he'd once called his wife. And Tom was more than happy to give it all to him. Tom told police that on the day that he'd killed his parents, Pat convinced him to try to work things out with them and had dropped him off at their house. When he got there, nobody was home, but he noticed that the power was out. So he went downstairs to check the breaker, and his mother came home from where she'd been. Then right behind her was his father, who said that he'd received an anonymous tip that Tom had broken into their basement. Tom heard all of this from the basement, so he still didn't put two and two together though before he knew it his father tore down the stairs and started shooting the only place he could run was a small nook in the basement where he hoped his father wouldn't find him but his father just kept shooting and and yelling directly at that very spot tom said that he ducked down only to well wouldn't you know it there's a shotgun fully loaded and leaning there against the wall right beside him when his father ran out of bullets, he was about to come out and try to run run by, but his mother was there with the rifle and she shot at him. It was then that he returned fire and killed both of them. The police believed every word of it because that's exactly what the evidence showed. There was not one shred of evidence that Pat had anything to do with it, even though Tom knows that he and his parents were set up. Till this day, he doesn't believe that he was supposed to make it out alive. He thinks he was supposed to be killed in there, too, in the shootout. Since there was no evidence against her, Pat was released from prison again in 1999. This time, she went to live with her stepfather and his new wife, whom he'd buried after the death of her mother, which he, which she missed like you do when you're locked up. Now, going by the name Pat Taylor, she opened a doll shop and that she named Pat's Pretty Playthings, and you'd think that with all that she's done, that that would be it. But you know what? In 2008, Pat was charged with doctor shopping and fraudulently obtaining more than 3,700 painkillers in less than a year. She was charged with three counts of unauthorized distribution. 
she entered a plea agreement and a sentence was probation only. At this point in it all, one has to wonder what it takes to be permanently put away. But since her last arrest and now nearly 85 years old, maybe just <laughs> enough of, of the mean is worn off so that she won't cause any death of anybody else. Maybe so. I don't know. I'll keep track of her and we'll find out soon. I hope you've enjoyed hearing our story today. If you have, you know, it was a daily, of, of course. If you have, please wait and re- rate and review the podcast. Don't forget to follow us, please, on whatever you're listening to us on. If you'd like even more episodes of all three podcasts we have here at Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend, uh, well, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month or for the extra episodes of all three. Just go over to anchor.fm or Spotify. Search Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend where you can find out more there and they'll take good care of you. Please join us on Facebook group or now Twitter at Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend and I'll see you then. Thank you.